Welcome to Moving Forward. I'm your host, Lynn Swanner. On this podcast, I'll interview forward-thinking Christian school leaders and educators on best practice, innovative approaches, and new opportunities in Christian education. This month's podcast features Tom Rudnick, who's the CEO and founder of Masters Academy and College, an award-winning R&D Christian school located in Calgary, Canada. I interviewed Tom about Masters' future-ready model of education and the innovative methods that Masters uses to prepare students to learn from the future. Tom also shares insights for Christian school leaders as they work to inspire their staff and teachers towards transformation. Tom, thanks so much for joining me today. It's really great to have you with us. Well, thank you. It's my privilege and honor to be chatting with you and all the listeners that are tuning into your podcast. Great. So I know you wear a few hats. So the first is as the CEO and founder of the Master's Academy, which is located in Calgary in Canada. And you also lead an international network called Imaginal Education. On top of that, you're also an author. So you've written a book called Becoming Imaginal, Seeing and Creating the Future of Education. And all of those are, are really interrelated and, and part of a larger journey of educational transformation you've been undertaking that you've been leading really for a few decades now. So can you start us off and tell us a little bit about the history of Master's Academy and how the model that you developed there really has gained traction around the world? All right. Well, thank you. And, uh, you know, I've been in the education business now for over 40 years, so you can calculate my age approximately from there. And I feel that despite the number of years in education that we've only begun in the mission vision of transformation. In my background, my life, I've kind of worn three hats other than the personal, you know, family roles that I have. But in terms of my profession, uh, I've been an educator, both in the classroom as well as administration. I've also pastored, been part of uh, large church ministries. And thirdly, I've been part of launching businesses. And so the whole entrepreneurial side has been also part of my life. And so when I look at the work that I'm doing today, it really pulls from all three of those areas that I have uh, previously experienced. I started my teaching career in 1978. I was quite idealistic, young teacher willing to take on the challenges of education, and it did not take me long to understand that the system that uh, was prevailing at that time was not only broken, but was obsolete. Uh, At that time, I was teaching in public education in Ontario, Canada, and after several years involved in private education, and at the time I was also pastoring on the side, we decided to move to Toronto, where I took over the superintendency of a Christian school that was being delivered through a very large church in Toronto. And it was during that time that I became deeply involved in Christian education. And I I soon reached the same point of dissatisfaction as I had when I was teaching in public ed. Obviously, within the Christian context, there's so many benefits of of having a Christian school and being able to freely uh, introduce and integrate our Christian values and our faith Uh, biblical truths into the daily curriculum and daily experience of students. And that was a wonderful experience. But the same dissatisfaction around the system and the way education was being delivered, uh, you know, that began to well up inside of me. And so probably, you know, in around the early 1990s, that dissatisfaction began to really reach a zenith point in my life. 
And I began to research, I began to travel internationally and, and look for places thinking, surely there is a model of how education is being delivered somewhere in the world that we can partner with or even emulate, if you wish. And to my disappointment, I was not able to find anything that rose to the level that I felt was necessary or needed. And so in those early 90s, as I continued leading the Christian school in Toronto, and I was part of a pastoral team and and staff there as well, something began to well up inside of me. And somewhat, I had a burning bush experience, if you wish. Uh, It was kind of driven by a, a scripture passage from Luke 640, where Jesus said, a student is not above the teacher, but when he's fully trained will be as a teacher. And I began to contemplate, what does that mean? to be as a teacher. And immediately, you know, these questions began to pop into my mind. You know, when did Jesus become a teacher? How old was he? And uh, the answers that uh, came to my mind was that Jesus was 12 years old. Uh, The story in the Bible where Jesus was dialoguing with the elders of the temple as an equal at the age of 12. And that was also consistent to what was happening culturally in the time of Jesus, that People entered adulthood early in life because they actually did not live very long. And so that was an interesting concept. And the concept began to grow. Is it possible for students to become, as a teacher, not above the teacher, by the age of 12 or 13 or even earlier than that? So that concept began to grow in my mind, which has actually led to the establishment of Master's Academy and College and the term master is really to be as a teacher, and is predicated on Luke 6.40. So I had the privilege of moving to Calgary in 1995. I left uh, the Toronto Christian School environment, and I moved out to Calgary. I was invited to be a part of a a staff. I was a senior associate pastor on a church here in Calgary, and two years later, we had a chance to launch a school. At that time, a vision we had already formulated around starting a school that at its core was a research and development school that was actually trying to design an educational system that would incorporate our understanding of how God has created us as human beings, how we're created to learn, how does the brain work, and all the rest of these Uh, wonderful things that would be part of our educational model. And so in 1997, we launched a school with a reasonably small number of students, 180 students. We're a K-8 school, but we had a bold vision that we were going to develop a model of education called profound learning and that we would eventually take this model around the world. And uh, it was very bold at the time because we really didn't have much to show of anything outside of this passion that we had of creating something different. And so we launched the school in 97. The next year, we more than doubled the 420 students, and we began to grow very rapidly. But during this time, I would say between the launch of the school in 2008, and that's roughly a 10, 11-year period, was a time of building the model. We began to deeply look at uh, neuroscience. We began to look at the core principles that would cause uh, learning to occur within the students and the children that we had. And uh, we began to look at practices, really good practices around the world, if you wish, 
But at the, the beginning, at the core understanding of what was the task at hand, we realized that we were not simply trying to add some new practices or try to make the existing system a little better. Uh, the realization was very clear that the system was actually not only broken, because if it's broken, you can fix it. But worse than broken is obsolete. And, you know, trying to improve obsolescence is really a waste of time. And so we began to go deep into the notion of system transformation and what would a new system look like. After about 10 years, the model profound learning has emerged. We began to mature it. During that time, uh, we actually joined a public school board and we became what is called an alternative program in Alberta, uh, Canada. And we developed and put in place a full-time R&D team. Today, that team is comprised of about 13 people that are working full-time on development of profound learning, of software tools and systems and practices, training programs. But at the time, we we started with uh, three or four people in the R&D group. And that helped us to accelerate the development of our profound learning model. Masters at the time. We had five statements that defined who we were. We had a mission statement, which really talks about what we do every day. And our mission statement was to develop uh, students uh, to become a master learners. So the whole notion of who the student is becoming, we came up with these habits of the master learner. Our Christian education program was integrated into the master learner development. So that was our mission statement. Our vision statement was to develop profound learning. And we've modified that statement because what do you do once you've developed profound learning? And then our third statement was our signature statement is that the signature, the thing that people when looking at our model, would say, well, that's what makes it unique. Our signature was innovation and creativity. How to unlock and unleash innovation and creativity with our students. The fourth statement had to do with the, our commitment to the uh, spiritual formation and Christian education uh, aspect of our school. And the fifth statement was a reason for being statement, which answers the question, why do this? And the reason for being statement was that we were to develop a learning model, a breakthrough learning model, and at some point we will share it with the world. Those were the five statements we started with. Today, we've condensed those five statements into two. And our mission statement is to prepare students to be future ready. And our vision statement is to transform education locally and globally with profound learning. And so we've simplified that, those five statements to these two statements. But at the core of our understanding of our journey is that the system itself needed transformation. And for that, we needed to build new systems, new structures, new tools. And, you know, thank the Lord, you know, we've been able to now not only achieve those uh, objectives, but we've been sharing with schools since uh, 2012, and we have a number of showcase uh, early adopter schools in different parts of the world. You know, I'm thinking about your, your book. The title of the book is Becoming Imaginal. And can you tell us a little bit about what imaginal learning is and also how it plays into the model that you've developed at Master's Academy and that now is really going all over the world? Yes. Uh, 
It's interesting how that book came into being. The term imaginal, first of all, let me define what that means. Uh, It's a biological term. Within the process of metamorphosis, we have a caterpillar going through a chrysalis state and transforms into a butterfly. And in that process, within the caterpillar are these very specialized cells. They're called imaginal cells. And when it goes through metamorphosis, the imaginal cells are those cells that actually become the butterfly. And so in writing the book, Becoming Imaginal, it's a metaphor that within the traditional system of education, the analogy would be the caterpillar, are those imaginal leaders that actually can see the future or can see the, uh, the future butterfly and go through the process of creating that future butterfly. So as I've been carrying this message of the need for transformation, and I'll probably need to, well, let me define transformation. Transformation is a major change in form and function. That's the definition uh, in the dictionary. And so most school initiatives or even government initiatives like No Child Left Behind are not transformational. They are incrementally trying to improve the existing system. That is not transformation. And it's the underlying reason why all of these reform initiatives have failed because they try to improve a obsolete system. Transformation requires a vision of the future. Improvement doesn't require that. Improvement just requires dissatisfaction of the past and is based on evidence or data from the past, whereas transformation requires visionary leadership. And that's why I wrote this book. I sensed that within education that there, was, there weren't enough people able to see the future of where education is going. And if you cannot see the future, then the only default position you can take is to improve what there is. And we know that that's a failed concept. And so I wrote the book of how can we ignite and launch or release the imaginal spirit that is within uh, leaders. The concept of imaginal, even though the term is from biology, the real nature of the imaginal, you know, where it comes from is really from God. You know, God is imaginal. The scripture says that he saw us in Christ Jesus before he founded the earth, meaning he saw the future before he even created the world. He saw the fall of man. He saw the coming of Jesus. He saw all of what this was, uh, what was to unfold. And that, in essence, is the imaginability of God. And because we've been created in his image, we also have the same uh, abilities to see the future and hence create the future. And that's why I wrote this book, is that I felt that we needed to develop and unleash the imaginable abilities of leaders to see the future of education that will enable us to actually go into a process of transforming the system and creating that future that we need it. So, Tom, can you talk about what happens in Master's Academy in terms of actual instructional practices? What goes on in the classroom? What goes on outside the classroom? And I know when we talked earlier, I know you developed a new program last year, one that really gives students hands-on experiences. And you also shared about that program in a blog post earlier this year, which we'll put the link to that in the podcast notes. But can you talk about what that learning process actually looks like? If we look at education, everything we do in education is about the past. 
the knowledge we have in textbooks, we're teaching students knowledge that already exists. Uh, it's all about the past. The premise of learning from the future is predicated on one simple understanding. We can actually see the future. Now, that sounds a little bit whimsical idea. You know, can we actually see the future? Well, the notion of seeing the future is predicated on some very clear concepts, if you wish. And one of them is that the future is already in the present. We're not just trying to conjure up a mythical future, but we have indicators of the future already today. And so it's a matter of us being able to see the future. The Bible talks about us as being a people of Issachar, men and women of Issachar, that there are signs of the times, that we can read the signs and we can see, you know, and anticipate perhaps what's coming in the future. There is an analogy to that concept. The signals that we have from the future are both strong and weak. You know, we have uh, strong signals that are trends. These are things that we actually can collect data on today. The autonomous vehicle development and maturing of vehicles that eventually will be driverless, that's a trend. Nobody is going to dispute that that's going to happen. And it's a fairly mature trend. Uh, and we could see a timeline of when those particular accomplishments or milestones will be achieved and what are the elements that need to be part of the allowance of autonomous vehicles to emerge, you know, infrastructure development, 5G networks, and many different things that need to be developed alongside of uh, autonomous vehicles. But that's an example of a very strong signal. There are multiple signals, hundreds of these signals that are already in today. And what we have developed here is a methodology and a process by which students can actually begin to analyze what experts are saying in the field relating to those signals. And we can actually create a predictive curve called an S-curve. This is a understanding of the maturing of that particular trend as it relates to adoption within the world that we live in. And so we create these S-curve trends, and students create these trends through the research that they do. And from the S-curves, we begin to look at what would be the future impact of that particular trend. If it's 10 years from now, how will that trend impact our world? And, uh, you know, autonomous vehicles, how's that going to impact, you know, car dealerships? How's that going to impact insurance companies? How's that going to impact taxi services? Are people going to even own cars anymore? Uh, you know, there's a lot of different things you can begin to look at as relates to future impact. And then as you look at multiple trends and impacts, you begin to combine them together. And that's called the Manoa method. And, and you begin to combine these uh, trends and you start to look at what would be a scenario, a plausible, rational scenario. We introduce students to six different kinds of futures. You know, a possible future, a plausible future, a preferred future, a preposterous future, or a potential future. They all have variations to them. But we're not actually trying to predict the future. It's silly to try to predict the future, uh, you're probably 99% certain to be wrong. So it's not about prediction, it's about creating plausible, rational scenarios of the future and, and creating multiple ones that allows us to create a, a scenario that you can place yourself into. We had our students doing that last year, which was our first full year of this program that we've uh, launched. And many of the students, as they were placing themselves into the future, which would have been 14, 15 years in their lives, 
they begin to evaluate their future and how are they going to get to that future as relates to the choices they make in university, as relates to programming that they uh, might choose. And so they began to place themselves in the future and they began to learn a lot about the future and specifically about how that future will impact themselves. That was one of the outcomes that we wanted our students to have was to kind of consider the impact they would have on them personally. But the second scenario that we wanted them to uh, look at is what are the opportunities for innovation? The innovation side of it is the linchpin of the whole process. You know, if we can see the future 10, 15 years from now and we have today, that future 10, 15 years from now is not going to come from nothing. It's not just going to come from today and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we've got this new future. That new future will have incremental steps that will lead into that future. And if we start to look at the incremental steps, those are opportunities for innovation. Because somebody's going to create a mechanism or a tool or a system or a product or service that will allow those incremental steps to occur. And so our students uh, were doing multiple proposals for what their future innovation projects uh, could look like. And we actually had that across our junior high grades as well as into our senior high grades. We did Shark Tank-like proposals where students would come in with their innovation proposal and it'd be like a Shark Tank moment here and they would present their innovation project as if they're seeking funding for it. And we are looking at the possibility. We haven't yet nailed down, but our grade 12 students, uh, what they are focusing in on is to have an impact project where they take their imaginal abilities and they, they look at what difference can I make in the city, in our school, before they graduate. So they look at an impact project. But what we are looking at is taking a small subset of those students and see if we can put them into a local business where they would do the same kind of analysis as they as I described for you, where they would go in and look at the business, they look at the trends that are impacting the business, they would create a, uh, scenarios of the future, they would create an opportunity canvas, and they would make some proposals for innovation opportunities to that business. We're hoping to launch that this year, not sure if we can, but the whole goal is to sh- showcase that the skill sets that they are developing are directly applicable to the marketplace, that they're going out there with something that is quite unique and quite exceptional. So I'm sure every school leader and every educator who's listening would agree that they want their students to be future ready. I think that's a bit of a buzzword now, if you will. You know, everybody says our students will be future ready. And, um, and I'm hoping that by listening to the podcast uh, and, and hearing the work that you're doing, maybe they have a better sense of what that might actually look like in terms of pedagogy, in terms of curriculum, in terms of uh, what their teachers and, their, and leaders themselves need to be able to do, that they'll really learn from the examples that you share. And again, we'll provide all the links in the podcast notes. But for those folks who are leading and are educators and are listening to the podcast today, what would you suggest just as some crucial first steps towards building a school, towards building a classroom that would really prepare students for the future in a real genuine way? And again, that's something everybody wants. It's something that we all say, but that would, would truly prepare them. Transformation starts with me. 
Edward Deming said that the systems cannot transform themselves. People transform systems. And it's only a person who's been transformed can actually go and transform a system. And so it starts with me or it starts with the leader. Their willingness to be open to becoming an imaginal leader. So that to me is the first step. The second step is to realize what is the problem that we're actually trying to solve. The, the problem is really about system transformation. It's not about trying to fix something. It's not like saying we've got some symptoms of the current system and let's address those symptoms. That's not going to transform the system at all. So it's really understanding the difference between transformation and improvement. I would say that without a vision of the future, there can be no transformation because it's the vision of the future juxtaposed against the current reality. It's how to close the gap between the two is the real problem. It's not about student performance. It's not about, you know, integration of Christian faith. Those are not problems, if, if you wish. Those are just, you know, symptoms, if you wish, of the existing system. So those would be what I would say the, the critical things to consider, starting with me, understanding what the real problem is, having a vision for something else. And I would say the last step, and this is a challenge I put out to all Christian educators, is to understand that being Christian and having Christian content or being a Christian school is no longer good enough. Here's a metaphor that I use often in trying to describe this point. Let's just suppose that there's a car that's riding along the highway, and all of a sudden the engine blows up and the wheels are wobbly. It's no longer a functional car, all right? It is now sitting on the side of the road, and you drive up. And you uh, speak to the driver. I say, oh, I see you have a problem. I know how to fix your problem. Let's put a Christian driver into the car. And that is, in many ways, what Christian education has been doing, is that we think that having Christian content is enough to validate or justify our existence. And I'm all for Christian education and having spiritual formation and development of Christian leaders. I'm all for that. But if the underlying system is actually broken and obsolete, we are trying to inculcate Christian leadership in a system that actually is working against us. It is diminishing the image of God because research has shown that the longer you stay in a traditional educational environment, the least creative you are. So my encouragement to uh, the Christian leaders that are listening is to understand that we have to engage in system transformation, that the delivery of education in a traditional way is no longer adequate. It's not good enough. It's not serving our constituency. We need to do something different. And uh, so that's my encouragement to the listeners as well. Tom, thanks so much for the insights that you shared, for telling us about the model at Masters. And I also really appreciate your sharing about the level of transformation that we're really talking about in our schools. You know, that, that car image is so powerful to give us a picture of that. And so thanks so much again for being with us. Yeah, thank you, Lynn. Appreciate it greatly. And for our listeners, thanks for joining us today as well. Please be sure to check the notes on this podcast for additional resources and references related to today's conversation. Podcast notes can always be found on the ACSI blog at blog.acsi.org. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to the blog again at blog.acsi.org, or you can also subscribe on iTunes. While you're there, rate or review the show and spread the word on social media. Thanks for all that you do to move Christian education forward. 